Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. He's going to introduce not just the kings, not just like King David and, and all these guys, but Jesus, the Messiah, through this guy's line. And it's already kind of starting off on a bad foot, right? We're already like, wait, he's married to a Canaanite woman. So all these children are from a Canaanite woman. And man, it's already started off as a mess. Can God do anything good with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, would it have been God's first choice for Judah? No. Today, we go to Genesis chapter 38 to look at the lives of Judah and his children. Pastor James tells us about the life of Judah, a man who lived more for the pleasures of the world than for the things of God, and how he left his brothers to marry and live his life how he wanted to. Even in the immorality and sinful lifestyles that Judah and his children lived, and the disobedience they constantly displayed, God still chose his family and lineage to be the one that Jesus would one day be born into. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Genesis chapter 38, with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. Genesis 38, that's where we find ourselves. We are cruising right along, trucking right through this book. You know, so if you're going through Genesis and you're taking your time and you're reading through it and you're studying through it, and if you kind of visualize it as like a Netflix series that you're just kind of binge watching, so to speak, chapter 38 is like one of those. We left off with Joseph. He just got sold as a slave by his brothers and these uh, slave traders took him down to Egypt. And that's where we last left him. But this would be part of that episode where that episode ends and then it's like, meanwhile, or back at home, because you're wondering like, well, what's going on? I'm more curious about what's happening in Joseph's life, honestly, but we'll pick up there in another chapter. So we're not going to worry about that. What you get is a complete and total contrast to Joseph. Joseph was an amazing man. Again, Jesus is top, okay, as far as individuals that the Bible speaks of and characters and all that stuff, nobody beats Jesus. Nobody beats Jesus. But Joseph is my favorite biblical character. Favorite biblical. It's him and Daniel. Those two guys are like right there. And Joseph was a man at this point in time where we last left him. He's a 17-year-old kid who has just a tremendous amount of character already established within his heart. I mean, he's living out and he's making really good decisions that I would have never made at 17 years old. I would have never made these decisions that he's going to make. But he was a man of God. He was a man of character and a man of intellect and very business savvy and just a brilliant guy, an absolutely brilliant guy. The contrast is Judah. You have Joseph who's like making good decisions. We'll see in Genesis 39. He's the guy who runs away from temptation. Judah's like, where's the temptation? Where's it at? Where's it at so I can just give myself over to it? Okay, he's a totally opposite of his brother. Judah was one of the ones who had suggested that they sell their brother Joseph into slavery. The fascinating thing about this entire chapter, as we're going to go through it, is it's from Judah's tribe 
is where we get Jesus. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, as Revelation chapter 5 tells us. And you're going to read through this story, and you're going to be like, really? Wait, what? No. See, I don't know what your family's like, but God chose to use a very dysfunctional family to bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world, into this planet. And trust me, if you don't think that this book is real, Genesis 38 proves that this book is real, okay? Why do you say that? Well, because if you're just a man writing down a book, and you're going to try to use this book to convince the world that your way is the only way and the right way, you eliminate Genesis 38 out of the whole thing. You just focus on Joseph. Why would you air the key members of your faith, the founders, so to speak, some of the pillars of your faith, and all their dirty laundry? You don't do that. These are the stories that you hide under the rug. These are the stories when you're talking about your family, you're like, well, we don't talk about that. <laughs> we don't talk about that because we don't want to scare you away. The Bible is not afraid to show the flaws of its characters, of its heroes. And you have Abraham, and everybody considers Abraham a great man. Everybody. Muslims, Christians, Jews, everybody does. Listen, the guy wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. Put them all up there, and the Bible is just very clear. It's saying, listen, these guys that the Lord is using and the families that he's selecting to to form a nation, they're all messed up. They're all messed up. So you fit in. So you fit in. You're not disqualified. I don't care what your past is. You're not disqualified. You fit in perfectly, actually. Because the Lord's just saying, listen, I'll use anybody, and I'll use any circumstance to make my will happen. And that's exactly what he's going to do in Genesis 38. So let's look at verse 1. And it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brother. So at that time, this was the moment when they agreed to sell off their brother into slavery. And they go back home and they tell their dad, hey, um, does this coat belong to anybody you know? Right? Because they're not going to tell them like, hey, we sold Joseph as a slave. We made it look like an animal totally attacked him and killed him, and here's his coat. And we talked about this last week. They're going to cause Jacob to come to his own conclusions. Hey, do you recognize this coat of many colors? And we know it was a tunic that went down to the wrists and went down to the ankles. Do you recognize this? And they know that Jacob is immediately going to recognize that that belongs to Joseph, and then he's going to draw his own conclusions, that I see that it's torn, and I see blood that they took from a goat and splattered all over this thing. And so he's immediately going to come to the conclusion that an animal has killed my son. The reality is no animals have sold your son into slavery. They threw him into a pit first, and then they had lunch outside the pit while he was suffering in that pit, and then they sold him for the price of a slave. But they let their father conjure up this own story within his mind. They led him to this, all right? They led him to that story. They never said anything. And then they had the audacity to comfort their father in his time of loss. They're the ones who caused it. And so as dad is grieving and broken over this, and they hate Joseph, the brothers absolutely hate Joseph. Some of that is Jacob's own doing by playing favorites. But they're there rubbing their dad's back saying, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. They're liars. They're deceivers. They're just like their dad. That's how Jacob was. Remember, we all know that he slaughtered a goat so that he could deceive his dad. But this brings us to 38. So at some point in time, 
in that process, Joseph is either on his way to Egypt or he is there in Egypt. Judah has this idea, maybe he just can't take it anymore. You know, being around dad and seeing dad continually grieving the loss of his favorite son. And maybe Judah's like, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm going to move away. Not too far away. I think it's only like eight or 10 miles that he's going to actually go. But I'm going to move away and I'm going to start a life for myself. Okay? He's really just going to completely abandon the things that he knows that he should do. He's just going to figure it out on his own. He has no regard to his dad, no regard to the guidelines that God has established for this family. He's like, kind of like an Esau is really what Judah's like. We know Esau. Esau was more than willing to marry Canaanite women, multiple women, and just do his own thing. He had no concern for God or anything like that. Judah's kind of following in his uncle's footsteps, so to speak. So he says, he departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. All right, so Shua is the guy's name. He sees the daughter. The daughter is the daughter of Shua. Shua, I believe, means wealth, wealthy guy. So he's more than likely he is a pretty rich guy. And Judah is captivated by this Canaanite woman. Now, immediately, he should know we're not supposed to marry those guys. Don't get to your mind, you know, some of the things that happen within our own nation. If you're of a different color, you don't marry. That's nonsense, right? What we're talking about here is an intermingling of the Canaanites represented a whole nother faith. They worshiped other gods. And so this would be detrimental to this new nation that's being formed. And that's why God is saying, listen, you can't cohabitate with these people. You can't intermarry with these people because they're going to bring you down. You might think that you somehow can lift them up. No, we know the illustration. If I was standing just on the edge of the stairs here or the steps, if it's easier for you to pull me off of this than for me to pull you up. And that's kind of what's being conveyed here or what was told to these guys was the Canaanites. You're to be separate from these people because they represent everything that is anti-God, everything that is anti-Him. They have multiple gods, Their practices, and we'll see later on, even if you just go through the word, you understand that the Canaanites were a huge issue for the Israelites, huge issue in the downfall of these guys. But here's Judah. He he sees this lady. He knows who she is. He knows what she represents, and he knows all that stuff. And it seems as though the, uh, the proclamation that Jacob had made back in Bethel, before he took his family back to Bethel, when he said, let's clean our house of all the idols, let's free ourselves of all this stuff, the idolatry and everything, we're going to worship God. It seems like that really didn't resound in Judah's heart. We know it made an impact within Joseph's heart, because he was set on following God. And I truly believe that that moment, his dad actually stood up and said, listen, we're not off all the nonsense. We're not going to worship these things. We're only going to worship God. That made a difference in Joseph's life. It didn't make a difference in Judah's life. It never made a difference for him. Clearly, it didn't make a difference for him because he has no problem pursuing somebody that he should never be connected with. He's going to pursue her. So he sees her. He gets married to her and then went into her. Verse 3, so she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ar, or Er, I think technically it's pronounced Ar, and he's like destined to be a pirate or something. I don't know why. I mean, there's meaning behind what that name is, but Ar, that's his name. 
So he has a son. He's going to have three sons. But this dude, heir, you could say heir, you could say R, whatever. I can promise you that this guy is not going to be in heaven. So when you get there, he's not going to come find you and say, hey, why were you calling me by the wrong name? This dude's wicked. This dude is wicked, okay? This is his firstborn son, Judah's firstborn son. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah, all right? He, Judah, and his family were at Chezib when she bore him. So his family's growing. And again, keep in mind, this is the tribe that God has already predestined that he's going to introduce, not just the kings, not just like King David and, and all these guys, but Jesus, the Messiah, through this guy's line. And it's already kind of starting off on a bad foot, right? We're already like, wait, he's married to a Canaanite woman. So all these children are from a Canaanite woman. And man, it's already started off as a mess. And can God do anything good with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, would it have been God's first choice for Judah? No. No, and Judah is acting out of, you know, his own free will, and he's making these decisions on his own, and he sees her, he's attracted to her, and he marries her, and they have kids. Judah has no idea, probably, that God has selected him to bring in the Messiah into the world. He he probably has no clue about that. He's just living his life. And it's kind of that that realm of like, well, this kind of feels good, so I'm just going to do it, which we know is bad advice, right? Like, you shouldn't do that. But this is how he's living his life. He sees a lady, she's attractive, and yeah, let's get married. So they have these sons, and this is setting up the whole scene here. Verse 6, then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn. So Judah is going to take a wife for his son, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar is, again, we don't know hardly anything about her. Her name means palm tree. That's what her name means, okay? Like, that's the extent of we know. She's a Canaanite woman, but Tamar. So Judah sees Tamar and sees that she's fit to wed his firstborn son, the heir of his, okay? Firstborn son. So he selects Tamar. They get married. uh, But er, or heir, I can't, I don't know why, but a pirate just always flashes into my brain. But, um... I'm just going to keep calling him Ur, so that way I don't think of that stuff. Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Oh, there's a lovely verse for you. Hey, put that on your throw pillow, right? Like, just maybe on a nice piece hanging, you know, in your living room. So when people come in, they see like, oh, this dude was wicked, and God killed him. This is, I don't know, this could be a cause for some issues within people's life. Because you're like, wait a minute, can God do that? Um, yeah, he can. That's not right. Well, we don't make the rules. I'm sorry, but somehow or another, we've gotten to this mindset that what we think is right and what we think is just, that God has to play by our rules. And I'm sorry, but we don't set the standard. God has set the standard. And if this guy is so wicked, I mean, it didn't even tell us what he does. It doesn't even tell us how he dies. More than likely, his wickedness is what led to his death. He's probably doing something that he should have never been doing. He probably knew better. But he is so wicked, the Lord put him to death. He just gets wiped out. That could be a frightening thought. (laughs) That could be a very frightening thought. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. 
we are on this side of the cross. And if this is all a, at all a concern for you, here's what I would recommend. You run to Jesus. You run to Jesus. May you be found in him when judgment comes. Because judgment's coming, okay? Let's not kid ourselves. Judgment is coming. But you know what? May I be found in Jesus even if it's time to reap what I've sown. May I be found in Christ. This guy, this heir, he's wicked. He's so wicked that in one sense, God's like, the Messiah cannot come from this guy. He can't allow this to happen. Now, this is not going to be the first time that God actually takes somebody out. Even in the New Testament, he does it. What's their names? I don't know why I just slipped my brain, but Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, there you go. We're like, I wasn't planning on going there, but it just popped into my brain. Those guys, they gave all for the Lord, right? That's what their proclamation was, as they go before the church and like, we sold our land, we sold our property, and we've given all over to the Lord. And Peter's like, "Um, why are you lying? And not necessarily, why are you lying to us? Why are you lying to God? And they got taken out. (laughs) <laughs> they got taken out uh, individually. They got taken out. Listen, God takes these things very seriously, and sin and holiness and all that stuff, we should take it just as seriously as he does. Now, I'm not afraid of God just showing up and wiping me out. I don't live in fear like that. Could he at any point in time say, okay, you're done and you're out of here? Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. There was a point in time when I wasn't saved, and I did have that fear of like, man, I think God could probably take me out anytime he wanted to, right? Like, he could do that. I don't live in that fear anymore, because in one sense, it's like, Lord, when you say my time's done, I'm cool with that, because I get to spend forever with you. And then we go through that same struggle that Paul went through, where he's saying, listen, it would be a benefit for me to, if I'm here on this planet, I'm going to serve the Lord. Uh, if God takes me to be with him forever, then listen, I'm with Jesus forever. And I'm not bummed out about that at all, right? It doesn't matter. So that's kind of the mentality that Christians should live in. It's like, yeah, if the Lord takes me out, okay. The Lord keeps me here, okay. What do you want me to do, God? Where do you want me to serve? How do you want me to serve you? This guy here, no concern about the Lord, no concern about righteousness. Nothing. That's not even on his radar. This is wicked. And God takes him out. God takes him out. But you have a widow that's left, and her name is Tamar. And culturally, this started in Mesopotamia, and it would spread throughout you know, regions of Africa and the Middle East. This was a cultural thing that if there's a son, and your older brother passes away, and his wife is left as a widow, and she doesn't have a son or any children, it is your obligation to marry her and to have children with her. And typically, the firstborn son of that marriage would be considered your older brother's son. And that kid would be the heir. But this is guaranteeing the lady that she's not going to be desolate. Because if she's never remarried and she doesn't have any kids to take care of her, man, in some regions, you're kind of like, good luck. Good luck. As you figure that out, and we see that, you read through the story of Ruth, and you can kind of get some implications from that story itself. But there's Tamar. She's a widow now. So here's the right thing to do. It says, And Judah said to Onan, his secondborn son, Go to your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. So this is a command by his father to do what is right. And culturally, this would have been like, yes, this is the right thing to do. However, 
Onan, is wicked as well. He's a wicked guy too. We get a little bit of insight into his depravity. So it says Onan, verse 9, but Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife, that's Tamar, that he admitted on the ground. He refused to impregnate her is what's going on here. Now, you need to understand this. It's whenever. And the sense of that word is that he had no issues at all sleeping with Tamar, having sex with her. He had no problem with sexual relations with Tamar, none at all. In fact, he was probably more than thrilled to have sex with Tamar. But he was unwilling to honor his dad's command and honor his brother's life, although he was wicked. But he is so set and consumed by himself. This is self-preservation here in one sense, because he knows if my older brother doesn't have an heir, then that makes me the heir. He doesn't care about Tamar. He doesn't care about her. She's just a means to an end. He's got no problem sleeping with her. He's got no problem taking advantage of her. Just as long as he doesn't get her pregnant. Huh, that's kind of sad. No, that's extremely sad. It's funny how that's a large part of our world functions in this realm of, well, we can just do whatever we want as long as we don't get her pregnant. And that's, unfortunately, when going through my stupidity and all that stuff and just some of the circle that I ran with, that was kind of like the thinking. As long as you don't get her pregnant. As long as you don't get her pregnant. As long as you don't get her pregnant. You can get whatever you want. Take whatever you want from anybody that you want as long as it doesn't cost you anything. That's kind of the mentality there. And it's disgusting. And it's sad. This is how this guy lived his life. He's like, yeah, I'll marry her and I'll just use her. You know, I'll use her and then... Yeah, I won't honor dad in what he has told me to do, and I won't honor my brother. I will refuse to do the right thing. You can only do that for so long until, well, your time is up. Because God is just, and he is righteous, and he's going to take this guy out too. This guy's wicked. He's just as wicked as his brother is. But because he knows that the heir's not going to be his, he goes to lengths to where it's like, you know, I'll do whatever I have to do so that I do not impregnate this lady. Now, some guys will take this and all sorts of subject matter comes up when you talk about this. And one of them is birth control and this is shouldn't use birth. This is not even talking about that stuff. I hope you guys understand. We're not talking about anything like that. What we're talking about here is a guy who was completely disobedient in his life, completely disobedient. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. It wasn't because he refused to get her pregnant or he spilled a seed on the ground. or It has nothing to do with that. It's the fact that his heart was so wicked that he was like, I will not obey. I will not obey. He lived his life where it didn't matter if it was his dad. It didn't matter if it was God himself who told him. He was so set on, I will not listen or obey anyone. I will do what I want to do. When you choose to live a lifestyle like that, your life probably will not last that long. In fact, we know from the commandments that if you choose not to honor mom and dad, you can expect a shorter life. You can expect a shorter life. Honor your mother and father. The historical stories we've been reading about in the book of Genesis are filled with lessons that we just can't ignore. Adam and Eve chose to disobey, 
and the consequences meant separation from God for all of mankind. Sin entered the world and grew so great that God had to step in. Noah and his family were spared because of their devotion to the Creator, and Abraham's nephew was saved for similar reasons. God does look after those who call Him Lord and who follow Him with all that they are. God's compassion goes even beyond this. He sent His only Son to earth to die in our place, removing the punishment for all of our evil deeds. Jesus' life provided a way for us to reconnect with our Creator and begin to live a new life covered in grace. All we need to do is realize just how sinful we are and how we're unable to do enough to warrant the acceptance of our perfect Creator. We then need to accept that Jesus, who is God's Son, lived a perfect life and then took our sins to the grave. He defeated death three days later. Because of this, He's offering us grace and forgiveness for all of our sins. All we need to do is say yes. We pray that you choose to say yes today. We'd like to encourage you right away to get involved in a local church. And if you're in the Galveston area, we'd love to have you join us. Calvary Galveston meets Sundays at 10 a.m. And you can find directions online at breadforthebroken.com. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. Join us again on Bread for the Broken, where you'll find hope and new life in Jesus. Let me paint the picture of you, man, who I love, man, and give